good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm Dean of the Arts, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney. It's wonderful to see you here on this uh, lovely uh, summer evening uh, for what I'm sure will be uh, a wonderful discussion. Uh, before we begin, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, we meet tonight on the lands of the Gadigal people, one of the 29 nations of the Eora Nation. Uh, the University of Sydney has has been in place for 162 years, but of course this has been a place of learning and teaching and, and the discovery of new knowledge for more than 55,000 years. And I want to acknowledge the traditional owners tonight, both past and present. We meet next to a traditional meeting ground of the Gadigal people here in Victoria Park, so it's a particularly appropriate uh, venue for tonight's discussion. I also want to welcome uh, our, our speakers here tonight who are, who are joining us, who will be introduced by uh, my colleague Bronwyn Winter in a minute, uh, and also acknowledge uh, our friends um, from uh, the French community in Sydney and the, and the French consulate as well. It's wonderful to work, be working with you again. Sydney has uh, a, a wonderful tradition of uh, French uh, studies. Uh, one of the oldest and most significant departments in the country about something we're very proud. And interestingly, we also have increasingly a tradition of Franco-Arab uh, studies, uh, which is uh, I growing in strength. We'll have uh, new uh, colleagues joining us next year to add to that uh, strength. Tonight, we're uh, here to discuss an incredibly important and interesting set of developments in contemporary geopolitics, France and the Arab world upheavals from friend to foe. We met in this room not that long ago to talk about the Egyptian revolution. So this is an excellent continuation of that discussion. And what I'd like to do now is invite uh, Bronwyn to come and introduce our two distinguished uh, speakers tonight. Bronwyn. Thank you, Duncan. We're actually going to remain seated for most of the evening because it's going to be a, a, an in-conversation, but I'm just standing up here because I've got some notes, so I don't want to forget anything. Uh, first, I would like th to thank Duncan for the, the introduction. Um, my name is Bronwyn Winter, as Duncan said, and I'm from the Department of French Studies at this university. And I should start by acknowledging that this visit of Anis Nacor has been made possible thanks to a very generous contribution from the French Embassy, who has been centrally involved in the organisation of Anis's visit to Australia, which is, is short but very sweet. Uh, after Sydney, he's going to spend a little bit of time in Canberra with the Embassy and ANU. Uh, the School of Languages and Cultures, the Department of French Studies, and the Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies have also contributed to um, this and other events at the university, as well, of course, as Sydney Ideas, and a big thanks to Meredith Hall. I'd also like to welcome our French guest, Catherine Audet, the University Attaché from the Embassy. Um, Jean-Baptiste Nicon, who is the new director of the Alliance Française, newly arrived, welcome. And um, um, Eric Berti, who is the um, consul, the French consul in Sydney, will be arriving. He's been held up, but he will be arriving shortly. So welcome, and welcome to colleagues, uh, staff, past and present, students, past and present, and members of the general public. I'm very happy to um, present to you Anis Nakor and Roger Shanahan, um, just to explain how things are going to happen this evening. Um, Anis is going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, about the topic at hand, and then he and Roger will be in a little bit of dialogue about it, and, and both uh, have considerable expertise in the field. First, Anis, uh, he is a graduate, as uh, many French 
politicians and diplomats of the Sorbonne and, and Sciences Po, the Institut d'Etudes Politiques in France, he, and the College of Europe. He has a PhD in political science from the Sorbonne, where he worked on the one-party system with relation to Sudan in particular. And he has spent his whole career in the French diplomatic service, in fact, predominantly in the Arab world, um, from the Gulf countries to Algeria, Yemen, Jerusalem, and he was also on loan for a while to the British Foreign Office, and he has worked for a French consulate in um, Chicago. He was a deputy consul there, and he has been French mission to the UN in New York. He was the political advisor to the quartet representative in the Middle East peace process from 2007 to 2010. And he is currently, as you know, the, the EU chargé de mission in, um, in Syria. So, of course, he brings to this evening considerable expertise in the Arab world and in France's relationship with it. Roger Shanahan is actually an alumnus of the University of Sydney. He did his PhD here in the Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies on um, political development of the Shia, in, um, Shia movements in, in Lebanon. He has a master's. He has many, many degrees. He actually started off as a, with, a, with a Bachelor of Chemistry because he went to military school in Duntroon and... Um, he had to have a degree. So that's what he did. And then he changed his mind and went into to politics, in which he has a BA honours. He has a master's in international relations and Middle Eastern studies from ANU, and of course the PhD from here. He has um, been um, uh, served with, with the UN in um, Lebanon and in Syria. Also, he was with the peacekeeping forces in East Timor in 1999. He has been uh, to Afghanistan. Uh, he has been military liaison in Beirut during the 2006 war. He's been to Afghanistan several times since 2008, um, dealing with casualty inquiries there. And he has also been um, served as defense attaché in embassies in Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi. He is currently a non-residential fellow at the Lowy Institute, and he is a part-time member of the Refugee Review Tribunal. So Roger also brings considerable experience from the Australian point of view and, and, and in the diplomatic service and military from Australia. So great big welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. And I'm now going to hand the floor over to Anis to talk to you a little bit about our subject this evening. Thank you, Anis. Thank you very much, all of you. You used twice the uh, word of expertise. Uh, it's a word I'm a bit wary of uh, using it in implementation with the Arab world. You have uh, the sort of reputation that experts uh, made mistakes once in a while, but experts in the Middle East make mistakes all the time. And uh, it's the best example of what had happened uh, since now uh, early 2011. Uh, nobody has predicted that all this was going to happen, and nobody expected that two years later we're going to be in the situation which we are today. If I'm taking the, the angle uh, through the French attitude, is because France in uh, Europe uh, is the, probably the country which has the longest uh, relationship with the, with the Arab world, with the Islamic world. Uh, we had our first consulate open in Jeddah in 1848 because we were in Algeria and we had to assure the pilgrimage for the people from Algeria. It was our under authority. And uh, we had mandates in uh, Morocco, Tunisia, Syria, Lebanon. And that makes the relationship between all what goes on in the Arab world and France very peculiar. 
We left, uh, France left Algeria in 1962, which is 50 years ago, and then many of the people who were there are still alive and they're influential in internal domestic politics. And then whatever happens in the Arab world has implications in the internal uh, politics of the, of the government. But above all, to go back to uh, the way it started, nobody expected in... Uh, late 2010, when the first incident happened in Tunisia, that the regime which was uh, held by President Ben Ali, who lasted for more than 30 years, would collapse within less than a month. And immediately after, we had the same uh, event happening in, uh, in Egypt. And then we were taken by surprise, the French government and all the analysts and the, the, the journalists and all the politicians, by what to do, how to interpret what was going to happen. And mutatis mutandis, we considered that all the rest of the upheaval happening in uh, the rest of the Arab world, because immediately started in Yemen, it started in Bahrain, it started in Oman, and uh, it was a sort of romantic approach that this upheaval will lead to something better than what, what was before, and this could lead to a better representation, more respect of human rights and rule of law and equality. Uh, and our position was very simple, not to say simplistic, that all these people have been holding power for very long. They had to go. The time, they have done their time, and then something good is going to happen. Apart from this simplistic approach, nobody have thought what we would do if this prediction did not happen. And that's where we are today, with conflicts which uh, have turned into uh, be it Egypt or be it Tunisia, uh, with regimes which are no longer what the people who made this revolt and, and uh, demonstration at the beginning wanted. We are today uh, facing a situation in Egypt where we have a military coup and having a president which was elected who is going to stand a trial. In uh, Tunisia, uh, we are in the situation in which the uh, rule of exception and, uh, has been implemented until imposed until 2014, which means we are even worse than we were before the, the revolution started. And uh, as I'm in Syria now, nobody would have thought that over two years, more than two years now, we will have something like 120,000 people dead, a country completely destroyed, and I just received a message saying that the number of refugees and IDPs has reached 9.3 million people displaced internally in Saudi. That represents a third of the population of the country. And uh, considering this, we don't see any way of getting, we have, you all have heard about Geneva too, that was going to happen and all this. But for the time being, considering the division among the, the opposition, there is, on the short term, no way that they will find a sort of common ground to start negotiation to end this. Where is France on this? France has tried very much to help on this process of negotiation without success, not us more than the British or the Americans, who have been thinking of changing their position on the negotiation. They know that there is no military solution, but for the time being, they are not being able to shift the balance of power within the opposition. They are very much divided, and they are very much influenced by other countries, be it Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, and which makes that with the time passing, 
it's getting into the hand of Bashar, the president uh, al-Assad, because he hasn't got anybody to talk to. And on the other hand, he is losing control on much of the areas in Syria, but he's still holding the power, which means our position that he has to leave, it's not difficult and it's not going to happen soon, and then all the repression is going to start again. Um, as for what we have assisted, I would like to go back to the, the, the last sequence we have had since the use of chemical weapon. In May, in August, sorry, of this year, uh, inspectors came and concluded that chemical weapons were uh, used in Syria. And uh, as a result, the international community had to do something about it. And we were at the edge of having a unilateral action by the Americans and the French. And uh, at this precise moment, they came up with a sort of idea that we are going to give up all our chemical weapons. And now the paradigm has changed completely. It's no longer about changing the regime. It's no longer about trying to find a political solution. It's more and more about disarming uh, Syria from using chemical weapons. Uh, where we go from here, it's difficult to say. Brahimi is still working on agenda to try to reinvigorate the, the Geneva process, but uh, I'm not sure that you're going to see that on the short term. I will just end my introduction here. I'll be happy to answer your questions, be it on Syria or be it on other uh, situations, be it in Egypt, be it in, in Yemen, be it in Tunisia, in, in Tunisia, and happy to answer your questions to afterwards. Thank you very much. I, I'm going to... Don't worry, it's not over. Um, I'm going to hand that over to Roger in a moment. I, I just forgot to um, remind people at the beginning that Anis is here not as an official representative of the European Union or the French government. He is here as that, the word he doesn't like, expert on the region. Uh, and he's speaking in a purely private capacity. So um, any reporting of, of his comments should not be taken as an official position of the European Union or the French state. Um, so, and the other thing I need to make sure that people know is that um, this evening is being recorded. When you ask questions later on or make comments, we will give you a microphone. It is because this is being recorded. If you have any problem with that, um, please make sure you let us, well, you can, you can refuse to use the microphone, but we will still have to report the question through the microphone. Okay, so over to you, Roger. Um, thanks very much, uh, Bronwyn. Um, my role here before we have an open uh, Q&A is to engage uh, Anise in dialogue uh, from my and hopefully your perspectives as well. Um, in one of those uh, it's a very small world moments earlier this year, I was in Lebanon for a research trip and the uh, embassy um, recommended Anise to me as somebody worth speaking to and that was certainly uh, borne out by his uh, expertise and his insights. And then out of the blue, several months later, I got an email from Bronwyn saying, guess what, who I'd never met before, saying, guess what, um, Anise Lecourie is coming to Sydney and would you like to speak um, with him at this um, night at Sydney University? So sometimes some people you meet randomly in different countries um, come back in another form um, later. Listen, Anise, it, and for everybody here, I know it's a very complex uh, situation 
in Syria, but I suppose for the benefit of everybody here, um, would you be able to very briefly highlight um, the major countries who are um, engaged in the Syrian issue um, and what their aims, as articulated as they may or may not be, are in supporting the various sides and various factions in Syria. I think it's worthwhile for people to get an understanding of that, um, if for no other reason than you can get a sense of the complexity of any solution to Syria because there are so many external players with their own motivations and their own aims in achieving outcomes in Syria, many of which cross over and are completely opposite to each other, which makes it such a complex issue. So, Anise, um, if you could just address some of the major countries like Turkey, the Gulf states, uh, Iran and Russia, perhaps. Okay. Uh, I, will, I will start by commenting about the regional powers uh, and the major actors are on the side of the opposition are Qatar, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. And on the side of the regime, it's Iran, Iraq, and Hezbollah. I mean, not, it's not a country, but it's a movement in Lebanon who is supportive of the Syrian regime. On the international level, uh, I would put uh, Russia and China on one side with the regime, and uh, America, France, and Great Britain, and the rest of, the, of Europe too, on the opposition side, because they have been playing a major role in this. But uh, to take the example of the regional actors, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, they don't see eye to eye on how to support the regime, because what the common ground between a Sunni regime, secular Sunni regime in Turkey, and a religious-based uh, monarchy in Saudi Arabia? They don't see eye to eye because they are supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Turkish, which are the government is representative of this people, of this movement. And while the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia does not recognize a role for the Muslim Brotherhood in their own country. Qatar plays it differently because they have a division between them and Saudi Arabia, and sometimes they undermine what the Saudis are doing in Syria, which means that regional countries supporting the, the, the opposition are not agreeing on what they should do together. The other thing I wanted to underline is that in Saudi Arabia and in Qatar, uh, it's not necessarily the government who is acting. I can be just a prince, a Saudi prince or a, a Qatari sheikh. I can have fund for millions of dollars groups, I wanted them to do whatever I want them to do, while whenever we have support from Americans, the French or the British, we have a control by our uh, Commission of Inquiry, uh, the Defence and Foreign Affairs Councils, and we are accountable for what we do. Which means that you have had money pouring into Saudi, uh, Syria for the past two years, two years and a half, and not only money, it's weapons. And then that what is making more and more difficult today to find a, a way to the table of negotiations because you have spoilers who is in their own interest for this to last. If I take regional actors, for instance, Iran and Iraq specifically, uh, Anwar Malki, the prime minister of uh, Iraq, has been a refugee in Syria for a very long time. And then whenever uh, now he is in power, of course, he is supportive of the regime who supported him when he was in exile. 
And it's the same thing for the Iranians. The Iranians, they have used Syria as a base to fund and to support the Hezbollah in Lebanon. And for them, it's a really strategic importance to keep this control of the area, which they didn't have, what, 20, 30 years ago. And for them, it's very important. Um, for regional actors, uh, especially Russia and China, you must bear in mind that these countries were opposed to the intervention, American intervention in Iraq, and they were opposed to the American intervention in Libya, and which means that was the reasons, that is major reasons why they are putting a veto every time there is a resolution on the Syria issue in the Security Council. As for France and Great Britain, you know, it's again their support of whatever the role uh, were in the area. You mustn't forget that uh, the, the borders of the entire region, the Levant, were designed by Sykes-Picot, two ministers of foreign affairs in the early 20th century. And then for them, it's a part of their influential zone, though they don't have the military capacity to do whatever the others are doing. That, if you want, in a very simplistic way, the actors intervening in the area. To continue on with that thread, um, I suppose one of the problems in any kind of uh, resolution with so many actors is how people see the end state um, and how they achieve their aims. Certainly um, my experience in the Gulf and in Saudi in particular is um, because it's based on personalities rather than structures, that is the political decision-making um, outcomes, uh, everything tends to be the politics of the personal. And what that means is that there is very little um, thought given to medium or long-term um, outcomes. So the second order effects of policies that you implement aren't really thought through because it's just uh, the idea of the most senior person at the time. Um, bearing that in mind, do you feel there's any sense in um, the Qataris or the Saudis views of what is to occur in Syria if um, they succeed in getting rid of Bashar al-Assad or does their planning not go any further than we'll get rid of Assad and then we'll, we'll address the next problem after that? I think uh, for the Saudis and the Qataris uh, there is almost a personal enmity between the leaders, uh, Sheikh Hamad in Qatar and uh, King Abdullah. A few years ago, uh, there was a tension in the Arab League between the modernist and the traditionalist. And in one of his speeches, Bashar al-Assad treated the Gulfies, so the Gulf countries, as half men because they were under the support of America and they were not able to run their own country properly without the support of the Americans bringing them in the area. And this is something we may think it, it's not relevant here, but when you are in the Arab world, the way you addressed your adversary, you have to respect, and you treat him as a half man, it's very difficult to manage. And then it's a really a personal matter. There is no other plan for the Saudis today than to have him out of the, of the scene, of the political scene, just to obstruct the influence of Iran in the area. 
which they consider it, they have not a role because they are Shia, and there is an axis now between Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. And that's something they want to avoid, especially now the Iranians are getting closer and closer to get the, the nuclear weapon, and for the, for the Gulf countries, it's something very, a matter of surviving. Um, on the other side um, of the Saudis, again, on my last visit to Lebanon, um, Hezbollah has made a strategic decision along with Iran some time ago that um, they will do everything to support uh, the continuation of the Assad regime, whereas early on they appeared to equivocate just in case he fell over quickly. Um, but now, once they realised that he wasn't going to fall quickly, then they decided it was in their best interest to support him. On my last visit, I was told on a number of occasions that uh, the increasing um, support that Hezbollah was giving to the forces of Assad uh, was causing some discussion amongst the Shia community in Lebanon, particularly as they started receiving casualties uh, as a result. And the thought was um, amongst uh, has some Hezbollah supporters that is this really our core interest because we're a Lebanese nationalist organisation uh, first and foremost uh, and we support Iran but is really losing our fighters in Syria part of um, what we are about. Uh, as the conflict in Syria became increasingly sectarian um, I was also told that that discussion was finished and the supporters had now understood that this had gone past the notion of purely supporting a government and now this was a conflict, um, another chapter in the age-old conflict between two branches of Islam. Is that something that you've sensed as well, that uh, Hezbollah and Iran have really fallen in completely behind Assad and any equivocation has finished? Yes, I think that what has changed in the past four months, five months, is the interference of a jihadi movements, which have nothing to do with the changing of the regime. They want to go back to uh, the first ages of Islam, and they want to return to the caliphate, and which is nothing to do with a secular country or uh, secular institutions on equality, rule of law, and all this. It's really for the, for the Shia, they know that after the Alawis, they are going to be the next victim in the eyes of the jihadi movement. And this jihadi movement are funded by Saudi Arabia, are funded sometimes by, you know, uh, sheikhs, not necessarily government, which means that you have a variety of people with different ideologies, but all of them against the minority of the sects of the Islam, which are the Alawis and the Hezbollah, the Shia. And then for them, it's a matter of surviving today. It's not any longer supporting the Assad regime, it's really surviving as whatever is going to happen if the regime falls, they are going to be the first victim. And that's the way they, they feel it, and that's that the way they have adopted the sort of line, which are, there's no difference now between Hezbollah and Iran. Even you see it on the ground. And this probably leads on, that's a good segue into um, the issue to deal with the jihadists in Syria. Again, um, there was a feeling that one of the reasons, and Russia has many reasons to support the Assad regime, but one of the reasons um, was early on Russia understood that 
many of the jihadists, the early jihadists who came um, through Turkey were from the Caucasus. And if they were to have um, a success militarily in Syria, then several years later, they would just come back to Russia um, and become Russia's problem. So far better to support a regime that was um, seeking the same outcomes. In your opinion, is there, if there is a diplomatic solution um, at some time in the future for the situation in Syria, to what degree could these jihadist groups be controlled? And I suppose I'm saying to what degree uh, even the private individuals as well as um, governments either privately or um, publicly supporting them. What leverage do these groups have over the jihadists and by pulling their support, A, could they pull their support if they were required to do so? And if they pull their support, what kind of material effect would that have on the jihadists? So I suppose the essence of this question is um, how much of a problem are jihadists going to be after the diplomatic solution? I think it's really the major problem, whatever the solution will be, and whenever that's going to be, it's going to be a major issue about how to handle this jihadi group. Because this jihadi group uh, are not uh, going to be satisfied with anything less than whatever they are calling for, which is the installment of Islamic Republic. And there is something, nothing which can be guaranteed for them to be, to have a representation within the system. Then for them, uh, even if tomorrow, in the ideal case, you find a political solution, you have a transitional government, and you have the support of the Western country to this, uh, to implementing this uh, new policy, you are going to have to handle a security issue, which is going to be very, very difficult to handle. And by all standards, which means that for the time being, uh, this uh, unstable security situation allows to manage the jihadi movement in a very tough way, which I'm not sure that that's something will be acceptable with any regime which will be having the blessing of the international community. Then, which means that even if we find a political solution, the security situ situation internally is going to stay very unstable, unstable for a very long time. Could I just interject something about the jihadists? Because um, we know that jihadist movements in the Middle East and North Africa are not working in isolation in one country. Um, the country I know most about is Tunisia, where there is a, a sort of social salafization that's, that's happening, where there's this salafist infiltration of mosques, of, you know, of, of various uh, areas of social networks. And um, Nahda and its coalition partners, the ruling coalition in Tunisia, are, are perceived either as supporting elements of Nahda, as supporting the, the Salafists, or as not wanting to do anything about them, or not able to do anything about them. So I wonder if you'd care to comment on the, the degree of networking among jihadists and, and how much of a problem that is. I think, again, they are not, it is difficult to consider that it's one country supporting this or this type of, of movement. You know, this jihadi are like mercenaries. They move to whoever is funding them and they do whatever they are asked to do. With the, with the overall aim is to reverse the regime, whatever the regime is, is, and to try to implement a sort of very much ideology or institution based on religion. And uh, I don't see this, this networking is happening all the time. And I was told recently by an official from the Syrian government that they have 93 nationalities participating in this movement. Uh, 
We have many of them coming from Europe, coming from Eastern uh, Caucasian, uh, Asia. We have even Chinese in Syria fighting the war. Syria has become sort of the place to be for any fighter. And you find easily the ways to get the funds for this. And regardless of what the end aim is, you are funded to do something which is to not to allow a, a, solution, a political solution. You are funded to disturb any potential order which is perceived against your own interest. I suppose the only thing I'd add is the, um, particularly for Western governments, the $64,000 question is um, for Westerners who've gone to Syria um, on jihad is when they come back to their source country, are they able to contextualise the jihad and say, that's what I did in Syria, but that was only for Syria. And when I come back to my country, um, I just live by the rules of my country. Or are they going to export whatever expertise they gained in that theatre into their home theatres? And there really hasn't been much um, study done on that. It's obviously in the case of the Syrian conflict too early um, to say, but one of the disturbing possible trends in the Syrian context is um, unlike Iraq, for example, there appears to be a great deal more um, people from Western countries who've joined jihad in Syria than uh, was the case in Iraq. If I just can add something to this, uh, you mustn't forget that after the first war in Afghanistan, <clears throat> when the Arab countries were supportive of jihadi movement in Afghanistan, after all that returned to Algeria. And we had a civil war which lasted something like 10 years. And uh, it's almost mechanical. These people who have been there now, we have counted roughly 800 people coming from just from Europe who are fighting now in, uh, in Syria. And then these people, whatever is going to happen next, probably are not going to stay there. They're going to go back and do their own activities in Europe. Um, we'll come back to the kind of the, um, the macro from the micro. Um, and I hope I'm not getting into um, uh, diplomatic um, difficult areas here, but I'll, I'll leave that for the, for the follow-up question. I suppose the first question here is, um, President Obama, as we said outside before, um, before we came in here, every fibre in President Obama's body um, tells him not to intervene militarily um, in Syria. Um, and he is philosophically ill-disposed to military um, operations far from what he perceives to be US interests and his whole um, administration, uh, his legacy is built on withdrawing the US from military conflict, not putting them in to military conflict. Do you think the, um, this view of uh, President Obama and the consequent inability to resolve the Syrian situation says a lot about how much the world still relies on US diplomatic and military power to force any kind of resolution? Or is it really sometimes there are problems that are too difficult to resolve 
um, for the international community because everybody's interests are at such cross purposes. I will answer by saying that the international community is divided on what to do about the Syrian case, first of all. Secondly, uh, on President Obama, you mustn't forget that in his speech of 2009 in Cairo, he said that in his new mandate he wanted to finish all the unilateral activities of America which has been taken, were taken after 9-11 in 2001 until uh, the Iraqi intervention. And then his aim was to bring back the boys and not to reopen new fronts and that he wanted to work with the international institutions and to try to find common solutions for this. And then it is, he is in line. He was elected not to solve the Syrian problem. It was elected to bring by, back the boys from Iraq and from Afghanistan. One of the interesting parts, we have one to, to bear in mind, that uh, now, by the end of 2014, Supposedly, there will be no more forces in Afghanistan, American forces in Afghanistan. And that is very important, you know, when you have already brought back all the boys in 2011 from Iraq to America, and you are bringing back the rest uh, from Afghanistan to America, you don't want to open another front on this. Knowing that even when we arrive at the edge of the military strike in by the end of August, it wasn't the plan wasn't to send troops on the ground, which means that it would have been just a strike at the threat of doing something. But above all, I think that the Syrian issue regionally is less important to the Americans than the Iranian nuclear issue. And now the priority since the election of President Rouhani, I think it's, it's Iran more than Syria, which means that the international community has been living for the past almost three years now with the Syrian crisis. Cynically, we can say that we can live another year, regardless of how many people are going to be killed in the, in the Jordan. This next question I'll ask you in your position as a private French citizen as opposed to a uh, French diplomat, but um, allied to that notion that uh, the US appears to have been um, quite equivocal on how to solve the Syrian situation, um, as somebody who follows the Middle East region but doesn't really follow Europe, it struck me that France in particular has been very forward-leaning in its belief that there can be a uh, resolution to the Syrian crisis. And as we saw in the case when uh, the US nearly got to the stage of um, undertaking a military strike in response to the chemical weapons attacks, France was probably the most um, uh, strong strongly strong advocates behind the US in um, supporting that. Why is, do you feel that France has been so forward-leaning um, in believing there is a resolution to the Syrian crisis? As I said before, I think that it's uh, the, the Syrian crisis, the Syrian-Lebanese crisis is very important in internal politics. And then that's led the French government when the assumption was early in the Arab Spring that the situation was going to be solved quickly without any uh, further problems, uh, we kept on this line and now we are a step back not knowing what to do next because we don't have a plan B. And, uh, but it, I think you have to differentiate ben, between the position of the government and the public opinion, because you, you mustn't forget that the polls were very much against the military intervention. 
and for the government it was to be seen as playing with the, Russia, with the Americans on something very important for the international community. It's why like behaving on behalf of the international community on a high level, though the Americans were not ready to do it, to go all the way. Can I just interject there? D d given France's long-standing relationship with the Arab world and France's like, liking to position itself as sort of the expert on the Arab world within the European context, isn't this idea that this belief that the revolution will be neat and pretty and quick, doesn't that appear somewhat strangely naive on the part of the French state? Because one would have thought with the experience that the French state has in relation to the Arab world that they might have had a little bit more depth of reflection in relation to the situation. You have again used the, the word experience, you know, as they've had expertise. No, we didn't. Nobody has expected this. And when all this, both regimes, the, the Tunisian regimes and the Egyptian regime fell, nobody would have ever thought that, you know, with the very strong control on the security apparatus and all that, they would collapse. And then suddenly we were taken wrong-footed and we didn't know what to improvise and we believed in a sort of romantic way that from out, out of this is going to come something positive. And three years later or two years and a half later, we are realizing that this did not materialize. I should add, actually, that the term Arab Spring is a very, well, it's quite a French term, a European term that's been sort of placed on the Arab world in, in nostalgic reminiscence of the, the um, 1848 wave of uprisings and revolutionary moments in Europe. And so the, when you talked about romanticism, that reminds me of that, that term Arab Spring, which is a really romantic Western framing of the events, I think. I think I have never heard it in, in, the, in this terms by any Arab interlocutor. On the, um, we spoke briefly about um, the issue of um, Iran, and it's probably worth coming back to Iran in a post-Rahani um, environment. Whereas Syria um, has been at the forefront of international efforts, particularly the US's efforts in the region, now that Rouhani has been elected and there appears to be um, some, it's probably too early to tell, but some optimistic signs that the Iranians may um, be in a more serious position regarding negotiations about their nuclear program than has been the case for years. Could you see a situation where um, Iran, who looks at the region and understands because it is the wrong religion, it speaks the wrong language and it's the wrong ethnicity. Its ability to exert influence really rests on its ability to work through proxies in the Arab world. And the Assad regime um, fits that bill perfectly. If Iran is to give any ground in its nuclear negotiations, it's going to have to ensure that it maintains uh, influence in the region as it believes befits a country like Iran. Could you see a situation where the West, which views the Iranian nuclear um, aspirations as a greater security threat probably than um, the fall of Assad, or sorry, the uh, Assad retaining his power, could you see a situation in the future where um, 
people coming to terms with Assad staying in power in Syria is seen as part of the price you have to pay to get the Iranians to move on their nuclear negotiations? I, I think it's a fact. It's already there. Uh, we are uh, negotiating with Iran now. We have restarted after the General Assembly of the UN negotiations with, uh, with the Iranians on this issue without mixing the two issues, the nuclear issue and the Syrian crisis. Then uh, for the international community, the first priority is to handle the threat of a potential nuclear uh, capacity of Iran rather than the Syrian crisis. As I said earlier on, we have lived almost three years with the Syrian crisis. Cynically, we can conceive that uh, it's so difficult to solve in the situation today that we can leave another, the time that will take before we come to a point where a solution for the Syrian crisis can be. And I see it's more like, not on the Iranian nuclear issue, but more on a bargain between the Russians and the Americans. And when this plan can be cooked or put together, all the other parties will be very happy to contribute to, rather than to be instrumental in trying to modify the plan or the, or the solving of the Syrian crisis. It's sometimes been said to me that um, the greatest thing that the Gulf states fear after an Iran that is not part of the international community is an Iran that is part of the international community because that will um, consign them to relative irrelevance. Yes. Um, do you think that's part of um, the reasons why we are seeing the backlash from um, some of the Saudis, particularly uh, Prince Bandar, um, believing that they are being sidelined in regional negotiations or the US not being as forthright on Syria as they believe it should? or Iran and the US appearing to uh, make steps towards uh, some greater um, relationship. Do you think the Saudis are starting to feel the heat of being on the outer, whereas before they've always been at the centre of US regional um, thinking? The Saudis benefited from the difficulty the Americans had with handling Iranian issues. And that, that was, that was it gave them more importance than they had. But today, and, and uh, Mr. Kerry is in Saudi Arabia trying to explain this new policy to the, to the Saudis, trying to reassure them that this solution or whatever uh, position we, try, we will be able to get to the, to the, with the Iranians, it's not going to be at the expenses of the, of the Saudi interest. But I think that the, 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 there, are, there are good reasons why they should be a bit worried, because the position has changed. And above all now, the, we, are, we are getting to a point in Saudi Arabia where the king is very old, and there is a change of the generation within the Saudi regime, and that this might pose difficulties internally for Saudi Arabia regardless of the environment, it's, it's sort of transition within the Saudi regime. It's a very, I mean, the Syrian issue is fascinating from so many points of view, but one that I'd be interested in your um, opinion on is, we understand that uh, at the political level, um, some of the regional states, I'm talking Turkey and the Gulf states, um, see Syria really as an issue of Assad must go. It's a, it's a very personal issue. Um, and while what passes for uh, opinion polling is fraught with difficulty in the Middle East, 
Um, the most um, responsible opinion polling um, that we've seen, particularly coming out of Turkey, is that while Prime Minister Erdogan has been very forward in asking for uh, Assad to go, uh, the Turkish population is much more ambivalent about it. And in fact, the last uh, opinion poll I saw had 60% of the population um, not believing that Assad going had to be part of the solution. Do you get a sense, and also in, um, in Jordan, some of my interlocutors also said that if they could have their time again, they would like to wind the clock back in Syria because they actually liked it the way it was um, because it provided stability to the northern border and they didn't have several million um, refugees um, camped out. Do you get any sense um, that the general population is much less concerned about who rules Syria and are more concerned about stability in Syria than some of the regional leadership? But I think that this is, you can apply it not only on, on the neighbouring countries, you can apply it including in Syria. Because in Syria, many people today are saying, you know, we know what we have, but we, know, we don't know what we're going to get. And that's not what we are seeing. It's not very reassuring. And in the past two years and a half, the opposition has not been able to put together a plan on what their, their plan is when they get to power. Not only they are not united, but they are not even uh, uh, being able to have a sort of common ground uh, on what the plans are going to be and convincingly saying that this is what we are going to do. Just to give the, the, the example when you mentioned earlier on about Malula incident, I don't know if you are familiar with Malula. Malula is a small, very old town, Christian town, outside 25 kilometers north of Damascus. Christian, where the people still speak the language of the Christ. And uh, you had a group of jihadi people who came in, uh, invaded the, the town and all this. And immediately after, you had the people from the coalition saying, you know, don't worry, uh, when we get to power, we will ensure your security. If you are a Christian, there is no reason why you should believe them, because they don't have the power and they don't have the capacity to implement these promises. And then that's why the people are saying, OK, guy, we may have many things we do not like with the regime of Bashar al-Assad, but at least, you know, we can carry on uh, our life more or less normally. And then whatever comes next is more worrying than what you had. Um, this is the final question in this um, uh, in this discussion, then we'll throw it open um, under Bromwood's tutelage to the audience. But while we all talk about political solutions and political difficulties in Syria, the most pressing issue is a humanitarian crisis. As you pointed out, there's nine million um, either internally displaced or refugees uh, in the region. There are reports that there have been outbreaks of polio in the country, and there have been other reports of starvation. Um, one of the issues that have been put on the table as a way of opening negotiations and opening um, a way of opening up Syria to greater um, intercession of external forces is to perhaps allow a greater access for humanitarian organisations into Syria. Um, do you see any likelihood of that happening? Um, and briefly, how, what would be the mechanics of that occurring? 
I think, you know, whenever I meet officials in my capacity in, in, when I'm in Damascus, it's the major issue I raise with them is the access for humanitarian assistance to people and the human rights because they have something like 100,000 people in jail. And it's something we deal with every time we have a contact with them. But how to put this into uh, what can we offer them in exchange, it's for the time being we don't have much uh, to offer because uh, there are the sanctions and the re sanction regime against the, the, the regime and all import and, and the banking sector and all that. But uh, our major concern is the humanitarian situation. Then slowly is to try to shift the idea from the security mind that, you know, you can do more on the axis without jeopardizing your, your security situation. You can do it because now there is no major threat on you being reversed, but as an exchange, if you do this, that will be in conformity with what the international community is expecting from you. You have done it on chemical weapons, then try to do it on the humanitarian side, and then that's the message we are, we are getting through all our contact with the, with the officials. Do you think there's any do you think there's any serious um, possibility of um, sanctions being used as a bargaining chip in allowing that humanitarian access, or are sanctions off limits? In our explanation with the, with the Syrian regime, we always tell them that all the sanctions, there is a clause, an exception for humanitarian cases, and there are ways of dealing with this. But in return, we need to see uh, the access for the UN agencies, the International Red Cross, and all the international NGOs dealing with the humanitarian uh, situation being able to go through. You know, that implies visas, access to visas, uh, security for the trucks getting to these areas, and their answer is that oftentimes they do not control large part of the, of the country, and that that's the reason why they don't have access. But it is the fact that they are using the humanitarian crisis as a tool uh, on their political bargain with the opposition, of course. Yeah. Um, so thanks very much, uh, Anise. I'll now hand over to, to Bronwyn. Okay, so we now open to the floor for questions. We have a roving mic for people to use, and if people wish to identify themselves, um, you're perfectly welcome to, but you don't have to. <laughs> Thank you very much for a very um, illuminating talk for the three of you. Uh, my name is Estela Valverde from Macquarie University. And there is, uh, in, in your, in your um, explanation, uh, one missing um, partner, from, one silent partner from the region, which is Israel. And I was wondering whether you could comment what's the role in the Syrian conflict, and um, whether there is um, a hidden um, desire for the balkanization of the region so that Israel becomes just another re uh, religious community within a majority of religious communities. Uh, for, for Israel, of course, I didn't mention it was in the topic, but of course it's, it's a major influence for them. For the time being, Israelis are very, keeping very quiet. They keep, you know, they intervene on sort of surgical matters. They know they have been attacking areas. I was there three weeks ago. There was an attack on an um, electricity plant just outside Damascus. The question was, who did that? Probably the Israelis. I don't have any specific information, but it could be them. But most important than all, uh, now on the northern front, Syria is no longer a threat 
for Israel. You know, before it used to be, because in the doxa, dominant doxa of the Ba'ath regime, there, uh, all what they were imposing on the people was to free Palestine. Now it's no longer an issue. It's, I wouldn't say it's not important. It will come back maybe in the future. But uh, again, as Bronwyn mentioned before, I dealt with the Middle East peace process for four years uh, in Jerusalem. And you have to bear in mind that nobody talks anymore about Middle East peace process. There are no negotiations about it. And eventually, when this crisis is over, when we're going to wake up, there will be nothing to negotiate because the settlements are more and more developing in areas which were not supposed to be. And then in a way, uh, I wouldn't say that the Israelis have uh, been instrumental in having this uh, situation, but they are taking benefit of it. And they do whatever they want and nobody cares. I have read that uh, two, a few days ago that they have uh, promised to develop, I don't know, 100,000 uh, units, and, and nobody's saying anything, sorry, 1,000 1, uh, units. Before, you, you would have comments, condemnations, and all that. Now everybody's paying attention to the situation, humanitarian situation in Syria, and nobody realizes what's going on on the ground. And then for them, you know, very discreetly, it's sort of, I don't know how you say, rouleau compresseur, slowly. Yeah, it's very difficult to stop, and it's very difficult to reverse. I'd probably just add to that that um, militarily the Israelis have been very um, surgical, as Anise mentioned. Whenever they've been fired on in the Golan, they've only engaged the people who fired at them, whether that be Syrian military or opposition. Um, the last thing the Israelis want to be is an excuse for uh, any side to use them to, uh, as a reason to coalesce. Um, and whenever they believe that um, more advanced weaponry is being exported from Syria to uh, Lebanon um, to fall into the hands of Hezbollah, then they've acted um, quite surgically and quite quickly in doing that. Uh, I think politically they, like everybody else, um, believe that Assad would fall quite quickly. Um, but I think the further on it's gone, they're a little bit like Jordan insofar as they would like to wind the clock back to the devil they knew rather than the devil they don't. Uh, and I think they would probably not be displeased if there was a resolution that left a weakened Assad in power, but without the jihadists. Uh, my name's Tom Parker. Um, three times I've um, heard our distinguished uh, guests uh, use the term negotiating with the Iranians. Uh, there's some common parlance in the Middle East that goes along uh, the lines of uh, if you have to get into a room, or if ever you get into a room with the Iranians, you've lost. Um, as to the Americans, uh, do you think that their reluctance, their position of reluctance to engage with Syria might have been due to the fact that Iran and Russia have cooperated in terms of Iran supplying $2 million to Russia, that in turn supplied arms to Syria? And that's quite significant in terms of the opposing threat. And thirdly, I looked at the GDP per capita of France over the last thousand years, and it's been declining um, considerably, uh, as has Spain's. And both of those countries have had extensive um, engagement with the Arab um, community over the last thousand years. Do you think that France's diminishing economic situation is diminishing its capacity to exert influence and power in the international community? Has it ceased to be a political warrior? 
to, to go back to your first comment about Iran and negotiating with Iran, you know, those who have been around in the area for a while know that once Rafasanjani was elected, we said we have a moderate president and we have a sort of honeymoon with them and it didn't last very long. We had the same thing with Khatami, the first man that we said, you know, he's somebody who can deal with. And the only one we didn't was Ahmadinejad because the, the idea was very clear from the beginning, which means that, you know, we are still in the sort of uh, hoping that something from the first signals the Iranians are sending through Rouhani, uh, hoping that something more substantial may come up because the entire situation has changed in the area. That's the first thing. About uh, the, the France uh, diminishing, I think yes, when you compare it to Spain, yes. Uh, the difference is that Spain's did not, Spain, uh, Spanish did not have colonies in, in the Arab world, first of all. Secondly, I think we, France still lives with the illusion that as they are a member of the Security Council, they can still play a role, but I think that it's diminishing very quickly. Monsieur, could I just ask you, getting back to the international situation of Syria's major backers, being Russia and China, could I tempt you into a hypothetical? Would the situation have been different at all had they not exercised their veto in the Security Council? Or would we still have wound up with the fractured situation that we have? And secondly, what is in it for Russia in that it would look as though Russia is going to finish up with a devastated ally in the Middle East? Um, I would have thought there somewhat cutting off the nose despite their faces, or does it turn on their naval base on the Mediterranean that they want to maintain? About the, the, the veto, uh, I think, as I said earlier on, the Russians have not digested what we have done with the resolution 1973 in Libya. Uh, the resolution was the right on, based on the duty to protect the civil population, and then it turned uh, in a way, a full military operation against Gaddafi. And then I have been told this by the Chinese and by the Russians, that they will not allow this to happen again in any conditions. Uh, one of the deputy ministers of foreign affairs of China came once to Damascus and he informed me, us uh, Europeans, because we had a meeting with all the European ambassadors there, that uh, since 1945, the Chinese have used six times the veto. And it was then they had used it twice on Syria. And he said, I asked him then, why did you use the other four? He said, on Taipei and Taiwan. <laughs> I said, do you really think that it is as important? For them, it's a matter of principle. The UN is not something to change the regime by any way. And then, again, you have the same position with the Russians. Uh, the way we have presented the negotiation, I've been in the UN, and you know what, what when you negotiate on, on the drafts, if you Whatever you write in the draft, you know what you are aiming at. And if you are aiming at a veto, you write whatever you know that the others are not going to accept. I'd just add um, on the Russian motivations, there are uh, a number of levels uh, and reasons why Russia is lockstep behind Syria. One is obviously what uh, Anis said, a, a, um, a belief that they got taken for a ride on the Libya resolution. And there was also a cost to that. Russia. Uh, exported about $1.7 billion worth of armaments to Libya uh, under Gaddafi. They export none now, so there's nearly $2 billion of arms exports that went up, um, went out the window. 
Um, there are also some peripheral ones that may appear uh, peripheral, but when you're talking about the politics of the personal, uh, they might take on disproportionate effect. Um, over the 40 years of Soviet and Russian military assistance, there have been um, quite strong links built up between the uh, Syrian Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and the Russian Orthodox Church has very close relations with Vladimir Putin. Um, and Russia also has, believes it has um, a legal responsibility to protect Christian minorities, Orthodox Christian minorities in the Ottoman Empire from a, from a late 18th century uh, agreement. Um, so a combination of an, um, a Syrian Orthodox to Russian Orthodox to Vladimir Putin lobby group allied with the notion that um, Russia has a historical um, um, belief and right and duty to protect Christians has a small uh, effect on Vladimir Putin's belief. Add the nationalistic um, view that Russia is a player in the region. Um, the naval base at Tartus is really a supply base and a small uh, electronic warfare base. It could be replicated other, in other places and as part of any negotiated solution there have been plans on the table to um, duplicate Russia by allowing access in other places. So I, the Russian naval base is not one of the reasons. Um, but Russia, same as in Libya, has signed multi-billion dollar arms contracts with the Assad regime. And if the Assad regime is no longer there, then nobody's going to be paying uh, the bills. So there's, again, another um, financial um, imperative for, as far as Russia is concerned, uh, for Assad to stay. But you know, there is a variety of reasons, but the Russian naval base is probably the the 100th out of 100 reasons. Hmm. <coughs> Hello. Uh, thank you, Michelle McClure and uh, Roger. Uh, very enlightening. Uh, my name's George Papanikola. I just wanted to uh, touch on uh, two possible uh, game changers, uh, uh, which I don't think have been brought up very much. Uh, uh, the lady before alluded to the silent partner of Israel. I suggest there's even more silent partner that has not been mentioned at all, and that's the, the Kurds. Um, <laughs> I see you smiling there. Um, yeah, they've obviously got a de facto state in the north of Iraq. Uh, it stretches across into the northern parts of Syria into Turkey, and we know the sensitivities in Turkey. But I was just wondering, uh, Mishun Akrul might be particularly across this, what is the state of a possible Kurdish state, official Kurdish state, and how would that change the strategic balance for better or worse? And the second possible game change, which is more kind of the medium to long term, is the um, uh, decrease in, a possible decrease in oil revenues throughout the Middle East, which obviously funds a lot of these conflicts, because waging wars and uh, funding guerrilla campaigns is very expensive, as you know, and Saudi Arabia's been doing it, been able to afford to do it. Um, but with the, uh, the fact that uh, the USA now has become self-sufficient in oil with the shale gas, coal seam gas revolution, and that's probably going to spread across the world, um, do you see that as possibly uh, being forcing some of these regimes to have to negotiate when they can't afford to fund their uh, jihadist or other kind of uh, 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 military uh, manipulations of situations? Hmm. Uh, on the Kurdish issue, I, was, uh, I mentioned that the opposition is divided. The Kurdish are even more divided than the opposition. You know, when I talk to the Kurdish, I have something like 14 different chapels within 
the, the Kurdish movement. And uh, I used to see them in Damascus. Now I don't see them in Damascus anymore because they have gone all to Kamesh del Hasaki or Deir Zor. And I see them when I'm in Brussels or in Paris. But uh, the interesting part of it that they always mention to say that we are Syrian and Kurdish. They do not want, for the time being, to be considered as fighting for the independence because they think that it will be a sort of casus belli. For the time being, there is a sort of, I don't know if you can call that a gentleman agreement between these people, but uh, it's like the Syrians have allowed them to manage this area the way they want. And uh, managing this means fighting the jihadi and fighting the free Syrian army, which means that a group of people who are opposed to the regime are fighting on themselves today and busy locating there, and you don't need for the, uh, for the Syrian army to go and fight in this area first. Secondly, I think uh, the Kurdish themselves, they are divided by people who are following uh, Ocalan in Turkey, and people are following uh, Talabani and Barzani in Iraq, which means that all these external players are playing on one of the ethnical groups with different agendas among themselves, then for the time being, it's not a threat to, to the regime itself. You know, they, are, they have no inclination to, to ask for something more because whatever they have got today, it's something they wouldn't have dreamt about three, before the starting of all this upheaval. And you mustn't uh, forget too that one of the first measures Bashar al-Assad took, it was to give them IDs to the Kurdish at the beginning of it, which they ran before. As for the <clears throat> American, I think, of course, the Gulf countries, uh, they rely almost 100% on the security provided by the Americans. You saw that when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Iraq, uh, Kuwait, the Kuwaitis had weapons, we have provided them with all the equipment, and within hours there was nothing. You know, you have the equipment, then you can't do anything with it. And that's uh, something you can apply even on, on Saudi Arabia or elsewhere. You know, all the security is provided by the American presence there. And the fact that now more and more, I think that the, the, the Americans are looking more to China and to the Far East rather than to the Middle East because of they have become more or less autonomous on the gas. And, uh, it, the, the importance of the Middle East is going to, to become less and less. It is going to become important on two issues. The first of all is the terrorism, and the second one is the security of Israel. But other than this, I don't see them intervening in. I won't touch on the Kurdish issue. Anise is much more expert than myself, but it's a very good question about the future, particularly of the Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia is the, is the obvious um, uh, potential problem in the future, if for no other reason than its um, population of around 20 million means that its GDP is much less than the other micro-states. Um, particularly some of the smaller states, even after the oil runs out, and in the case of Qatar, the gas, if it ever does, um, they have immense sovereign wealth funds um, that they have understood. It's a depletable resource, and I think you'll see them financially influential for many years to come, um, particularly a country like Qatar um, with such a tiny population, its GDP is enormous, it's the third biggest um, gas producer in the world and strange enough it's a gas competitor for Australia because Iran and Russia export their gas via pipeline but uh, Qatar's got to do it by LPG same as Australia. Um, I think the issue 
in Saudi Arabia is um, it's not this current um, generation of leadership because this current generation is on its way out. Uh, it's a gerontocracy. Um, it's how is the next generation of leadership going to um, address Saudi Arabia's structural, philosophical and governance issues. And at the moment, that next generation is still sorting out who is going to um, lead into the future because the Sudairi Seven, um, we're now getting to the uh, halfway into them. Um, they'll probably last perhaps a decade. Um, Saudi watchers are now looking at the next generation, but it's still too opaque. The decision-making process in Saudi Arabia is too opaque to understand who is best placed. Um, Prince Bandar is trying to um, promote um, his line of succession. Um, but you've raised a very good question to which, as there is with most issues in the Middle East at the moment, no good answer to it other than we need to look at the next generation in terms of Saudi, not the current generation. Although one could add that the Saudis will always have Mecca. <laughs> and that is not negligible in, in, the, in the Arab and Muslim world. It, is, you know, it has huge symbolic importance and thus other levels of importance as well. Perhaps a little flippant comment, but not entirely. Up the back here. Sorry, just, oh, sorry, oh, just before, sorry, before us, just one other observation. It's very interesting in, it, in a regional perspective of different countries' um, responses to the Arab Spring and the GCC states um, had a sense of circling the wagons. So there is a cabal of um, Sunni monarchies who are really um, opposing any kind of substantive political reforms. And the two countries that have been invited to join the GCC, uh, uh, Morocco and Jordan. Um, Morocco is as far from the Gulf as Sydney is from Hong Kong. So what they have to do with the GCC is at first glance a bit strange until you realise um, Morocco and Jordan are both Sunni monarchies, as are the GCC states, and Iraq, who actually does border the Gulf, doesn't get an invitation to join the GCC. So there is a, along with the uh, uh, military intervention of the UAE and Saudi Arabia into Bahrain, there is a definite sense that whatever's coming in the future, um, we Sunni monarchies need to stick together. Have the back. Hi, my name is Ashley McDonald. I'm a master's student at the Centre for International Security Studies here at Sydney Uni. I'm just hoping to shift the focus slightly uh, from the Middle East to North Africa. And my question is, um, France has been able to take a back seat and monitor the situation in North Africa without any kind of plan B, as you said. Um, but as the Americans demonstrate a lack of willingness to become involved, and we've talked about how actors like Russia and China are becoming more prominent in the region, I'm just curious as to um, how France will react to the growing security challenges in the region, um, particularly the Sahel, and it's being referred to as like kind of the Afghanization of, of the region, and there is a shifting focus, particularly in areas like Libya and the problem of you know, jihadists flocking there, and it's, you know, I suppose, a lot more in France's backyard, what um, France's security response um, in foreign policy and strategy would be. Good question. <laughs> uh, no, honestly, I, I, I would like to be able to, uh, to have a clear idea on how the situation will evolve. And I don't want to sound negative more than I have already sounded, but the worst is to come because the security situation is no longer 
you know, we may not like Saddam Hussein, but at least the country was held. Uh, we may not like Bashar al-Assad, but the country was under control. Uh, we another country we didn't talk about is Yemen. You know, Yemen when the when the time of the Abdali Abdullah Saleh, you had some troubles with with the jihadi movement, but they were under control. But this was a bargain in the negotiation for himself to to save his regime in a way, though he did not stay in power. But he wasn't judged, he wasn't extradited, and he's still there. But uh, the best example I see as the security overflowing these countries, which have gone through. Uh, revolution succeeded in a way is Libya. You know, what happened in Mali is all what uh, the, the, the weaponry which was in, in, in Libya, which was distributed in the entire Sahara. And this is something which may happen in Syria with whatever they have got. And it can, it can go including to countries like Saudi Arabia and all the rest of the Gulf. Then uh, that pleads in the advantage of keeping somebody who can have some control on the situation, security situation. Well, of, of course, evening to all of you. My name is Carl Sorkel. I suppose I'm a concerned citizen, ex-high school student, since I finished the HSC recently. So my question centers around Saudi Arabia. Coming from experience, I lived there for quite a while. It's also, it was once described by a recent article in, by Farad Sikia. I, I probably butchered the pronunciation of that. That Saudi Arabia had the most irresponsible foreign policy within the region, mainly due to the flow of funds and investment into the Middle Eastern region and the subsequent Islamic instability it entails. To what extent do you believe, or can you comment on, that has a significant impact upon the Syrian conflict or just any other diplomatic issues that are present in the Middle East today? In my eyes, there is no doubt. They have played a very negative role in the area without necessarily how could I say, meaning to, they have a sort of messianic approach of their religion. They are Wahhabi people, very conservative, very strict in the way they see how the uh, everyday life has to be. And for them, it's nothing, you know, providing millions here and there. It's, it's something they are not accountable for. And that's what I'm saying, you know, the, the, the foreign policy of, of the kingdom is managed by Saud al-Faisal and some of the people around the king. But uh, that's something. But you have something else completely different. It's, it's a free, you know. You, you do your own foreign policy if you have got the means to do it. And it's the same thing with the, the Qataris and the Kuwaitis and the Emiratis. And sometimes they support different groups competing, and uh, the same groups can have different alliances. You know, one day they are being supported by the Qataris, and the next day they can, if, they, if there is something they do not want to do, they go to the Saudis, and they go to the Emiratis. It's a sort of market. You, 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 pro you provide services, and you, you, you have somebody who offers the funding for this, the weapon and all that. There's a... Um yeah, Anish is perfectly right, and it's the difficulty of the opaque decision-making system, but even more so the um, foreign policy by remote control, the idea that money buys you influence, but you don't need to do the hard work to make sure that influence goes in the correct direction. And there's a good example from my time following the um, 2006 Civil War. Um, there was a lot of money uh, from the Gulf states given um, for reparations and to, um, to see who could be the best concerned Arab citizen in rebuilding uh, Lebanon. 
Uh, Qatar was very heavily involved. The Emiratis were quite good insofar as accountability. They sent a lot of money, but they also sent a trusted um, person to the UAE embassy who basically had to countersign along with the ambassador wherever the money was going to, um, and so they could see what was bought. Uh, when I last caught up with the uh, Saudi defence attaché, he was trying to um, trace down $500 million of Saudi money that had gone without receipts to who knows where, but it had gone somewhere, and that was his job for the next couple of months. They had no idea where it went. Several cheques were signed, and some Lebanese got $500 million. But that's the kind of complexity and yeah. simplicity of how sometimes uh, large foreign policy decisions are made. And I will go back to, to another example, probably forgotten now, but in 1994 you had a civil war in Yemen between the southern Yemen and the northern Yemen. The southern Yemen were communist, uh, but because they were against uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh and the northern Yemen, they were funded by Saudis. Then Saudis ended up funding Maoists to fight against the Yemenis. You know, when you, you it's so absurd that when you have the proofs, you say, well, what are we doing? And they were hiring pilots from Pakistan to go and fly with the, with the helicopters of the south, southern Yemen, just funding the money, which means that, you know, you don't need to have a, a, a real long-term plan or a clear vision of what you're doing. You have the money, you do whatever you want. It's, it's absurd. But that's the way it is, and then that's the way we diplomats have to find out who is doing what and, and measure the consequence of this. This next question will have to be the last one because we're getting very close to time. <clears throat> well, I'll keep it brief. Um, I wonder if there's a difference between French understanding and uh, understandings from the Anglophone world uh, to do with the origins of um, Arab-based Islamic fundamentalists. I'm talking about the, uh, war in, the war in Afghanistan against the Soviet army, which is the CIA had the biggest covert operation they'd ever had over 10 years and very successfully um, embrangled and entangled the Soviet army in a, in a, uh, uh, a quagmire, basically. Um, and uh, bin Laden and others were funded, were proxy for the CIA. In Australia and in even today, Americans and British as well don't really understand you know, the depth of that CIA proxy war and the bringing down of the Soviet Union um, and the unfortunate rise of a very fundamentalist Islamic movement who believed that they were fighting against the evil uh, you know, atheist of the Soviet Union. Um, are people, the question is, are, um, is French understanding at the sort of uh, government level or even at the population level, um, do they, do other people, or other people in Europe, um, blame the CIA for giving bin Laden his big career boost? I think that for the time being, what, in Europe what we are blaming is not the CIA, it's NSA about the hearing <laughs> all this. But of course, it's, it's something completely admitted now that uh, uh, the West and the CIA and the MI6 were partly responsible of what happened with Al-Qaeda later on. No. But uh, you cannot accuse them of having planned this. It was, you created the monster. 
and then you have to deal with it, and then it's very difficult to deal with it. And thank God the Saudis are a bit more amateur in the way they are doing this, but the disaster is there, it's all the same. We are conscious of this, but there's nothing we can do about it. In, in Australia, um, nobody knows the name of the CIA operation. It was secret at the time. Um, it had an operation name, but you can only find it in Wikipedia. Mm. You can't find it. Uh, I've done a search for Australian newspapers, and it's not no. there. No. And I ha there's no evidence that I know of that the Austra members of the Australian Parliament, National Parliament, knew of that covert CI operation went on for 10 years, yeah. maybe a billion dollars, you know, and uh, it's, um, every, I guess everyone on the ground in Afghanistan understood it. There was a wash with money and all the, all the warlords as well as, as well as bin Laden, um, it, they all knew it and Pakistan, yeah, it was, it was a major conduit and cutout for mm. that covert operation. Mm. And it's, it's, it explains a great deal about what's happening in Pakistan now. Could I, could I ask you to get to your question quickly so because we're really running out of time. Yeah. Okay, so it's just that I just thought there might be a French understanding that's different from the Anglophone world that we, because we are kept in the dark basically. Hmm. Uh, no, I think that uh, I'm afraid we are all in the dark now. Oh, okay. We don't know how to, <laughs> you know, my, my answer was we don't know what to do next. Thank you. And the horrible thing is that we can expect uh, that this drama is going to go ahead for the coming, what, three months, six months? I can't tell you when. Mm. Okay. Then uh, the matter of perception doesn't, doesn't change anything because we don't know what to do. Okay. Thank you. Well, on that extremely optimistic note, <laughs> I'll ask you to join me in thanking Anis and Roger very warmly. And if that's I, all, folks. Yeah. If I may add something, if you understood what I said that I didn't explain properly. <laughs> 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 <laughs>